0: Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Aiden Kenkioku, who is a researcher at PAX Fauna. This is a really interesting organization that's working on finding evidence-based strategies to most effectively make change for animals. Perfect. For our hen house because that's exactly what we're interested in. Aiden is pulling together evidence to explain the power of these movement strategies and how they can be most effectively deployed for animals. And I know that's something that you've been thinking a lot about lately was is theory of change and strategy yeah. and all of that. So this was a perfect time for this
1: interview to land in your lap. I mean, of course, we're always thinking about those things, but it's been particularly strong on my mind of late uh, you know, I guess like after you've been doing this for a while, I don't want to get into anything dark, but after you, know, you wonder like, is what we're doing the right thing? Is there any way to do this? Is there any, is there a way to, to change the world for animals? Like, are we just doing the wrong thing? Why is this happening? Why do all these people, all of these people, who seem to care about animals, keep contributing to this. And, you know, it's easy to understand why the industries do it. There's money in it. There'll always be somebody to do something that there's money in. I want to hear from everybody who's doing things that either are effective or they think are going to be effective or, yeah. or just have ideas. We need more ideas. And Aiden was a perfect person for that conversation.
0: Good. Well, I can't wait to hear it. And I know that you have... Uh, a lot of reasons for being interested in this. I mean, of course, it's your life's work. But aside from that small detail, you have a talk coming up, I think, this week, right? Is it this
1: week? Yeah. Well, by the time this podcast goes up, it will be last week. (laughs) Okay.
0: Tell us about it. That's exciting. I'm excited. I know you're anxious about it, but that's you. Tell us about it. It's a
1: program that's putting put together at Rutgers Law School and it's in honor of Sherry Kolb, uh, Professor Sherry Kolb, who of course was our dear friend and who taught at Cornell Law School. And she had taught previously at Rutgers Law School, so that's why they're doing the program there. And a bunch of people have been brought together to write papers and do presenta- short presentations and then Q&As and conversations on the issues that she was very interested in. And of course, the particular issue that I was invited to talk about was animal rights. I like to think that was the issue that she was most interested in, though I know she was, she, she was passionate about many things, particularly feminism, abortion rights, et cetera. So I'm nervous. like I, I, I don't want to misrepresent anything she said because a lot of the article is about her, but it's also about exactly what you were just talking about, about theories of change, how there's all of these different theories of change in the movement. I try to sort of sort them out You know, I don't know what one's going to be successful, but I focus specifically more than on the other ones on DXC's Theory of Change, which, you know, if you listen to the podcast and to the Animal Love podcast, you know, is something I've been really, really interested in for a long time. Because it's such a high-risk strategy, all these people getting arrested and trying to argue within court that the reason that they saved these animals was because they wanted to save these animals, and that means they weren't breaking the law. I I just wish I had Sherry here to talk to about it instead of having to present this at a memorial. But I think it's a really interesting topic. I hope I can do it justice. Uh, You know, I am very nervous about it.
0: Well, you get nervous. It's part of yeah, your process. I, and I I read it and I think it's utterly fantastic. So, I hope that after you give it, you'll share some pieces of it with our listeners. And I you know, you'll be you'll be fabulous, undoubtedly.
1: It's weird because in some ways I get so nervous, and then in other ways I get closer and closer to the point in my life where I just have no fucks to give anymore. Like, I've been doing this for so long, And people just seem so brain-dead about it that what is the point of getting upset or nervous about anything? How can anybody else in the world be right when they don't even recognize this is an issue? So yeah, I'm kind of trapped between those two mindsets.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that sort of dichotomy definitely rings true when I hear you talk about it. It reminds me of that quote that you've recently found. Do you have that handy? Because I thought it described you perfectly.
1: The Samuel Beckett quote. I'm not sure this is what he meant by it, but you know, the quotes out there, it's a very famous quote. I guess it means what you think it means, but it really means a lot to me. Where I am, I don't know. I'll never know. In the silence, you don't know. You must go on. I can't go on. I'll go on. You're on earth. There's no cure for that. Ain't
0: that the truth about that That last one? It is so the true. Truth.
1: And there's... No cure for any of the animals either. I'm sorry. I don't mean to sound despairing, but you know, I think there are moments when we all visit despair. As long as despair doesn't make you stop, that's the important thing. You can feel it as long as it doesn't make you stop. Because what else is life about than than fighting to end this monstrosity? You should come over and use my new massage chair. Like yeah, I might
0: do that. Stat. I'm not even kidding because we have this new massage chair. And when you said, "What is life about?" I, I just thought ending suffering and being in that massage chair, which sometimes is one and the same thing because my back really hurts a lot. Or or I don't know, maybe you need like a, a delicious latte or something like that. Did I t- I went to this coffee shop this morning and I haven't been drinking coffee in, in a while, except every now and then, like maybe once a week I'll have a cup of coffee. It's so because drink- you
1: used to drink coffee by the gallon and I, I know, didn't. I, and now I, well, I'm not sure I'm by the gallon, but I'm probably up to the court and
0: you don't. Well, because I was on the pill like last year for a skin issue, not for a contraception and uh, because I'm a lesbian. Anyway, I was on the pill and it made my body think it was pregnant. And one of the things one of the things that happened was I, I couldn't even palate coffee one day. And, and then I kept trying different coffee places and different types. And it was disgusting. Yeah.
1: I have heard so many times that that happens to a lot of people when they're pregnant. I've never heard of it happening to anybody just because they were on the pill. I mean, I could be wrong,
0: but that's the only thing I could. Oh, it makes sense. But um, anyway, so I do drink tea latte. I drink tea. I still drink caffeine and I drink a lot of tea. But this morning, my tea place that we go to together a lot was closed which was really mean of them, honestly. And so there was this coffee shop that I know is a nonprofit. It's a good cause. So I went there and I'm like, I'm going to get a coffee. The bean was apple strudel and it
1: was disgusting. Like, Why you would buy coffee called apple strudel coffee is beyond me. That, like, what have you lost your mind? I think I did
0: lose my mind briefly. Of course it was bad. So bad. Anyway, that is sort of neither here nor there, but I think we should get back on the subject of our hen house, which is changing the world for animals and check in with our guests today, because this is this is a topic that I think a lot of our listeners are going to really, really enjoy hearing about, especially from Aiden.
1: Can I clarify something before we finish? Yeah, I said before I have no fucks to give. I just want to make it clear that I don't mean that I I don't give a fuck about the animals. That's all I care about. I, I just mean, I have no I don't give a fuck about what anybody thinks of me. Yes.
0: No, I think people got that, but was that unclear? No, I think it was very clear.
1: All right, I'm a little anxious and worried about things going wrong. Yeah. You're good. Come over right. and use my massage chair.
0: Aiden found their way into the animal freedom movement through direct action everywhere.
1: I like that, don't you? Animal freedom movement? Yeah, I like it's that. That's a good a lot. one. Cuz we've been using animal protection. I like that better.
0: Yeah, I've also heard the justice movement and animal justice which is another one that I like it. I mean, you know, why not shake it up. Their years as a DXE organizer and glimpses of other mass protest events left them convinced of the power of a mass participatory social movement as a force for change. Now, as a researcher at Pax Fauna, Aiden is pulling together evidence to explain the power of these movement strategies and how they can be most effectively deployed for animals. In 2023, Pax Fauna launched Pro-Animal Future, an organization of volunteers, voters, and small donors merging the power of participatory movements with the unique political opportunity presented by citizen ballot initiatives. They will be joining Marianne right after this.
1: Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can... Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to our henhouse, Aiden.
2: Thank you, Marianne. I'm so glad to be here.
1: I am thrilled to have you here because I have been reading about fauna. I'm very excited about what you're doing. And I hope you're the ones who are gonna find the answer of how we do this, how we like change the entire world.
2: We, we actually already found it. Um, it's all, yeah, all solved, <laughs> all yeah. Right.
1: This interview is yeah. going to be very powerful, yeah. I can see. All right, we have the answer. All right, so just, let's just start for people who aren't familiar with Pax Fauna. And I really encourage anybody who isn't to go on the web and like look at what you've been writing and look at what you're working on, because we're not going to be able to cover it all today. But just the nutshell version, what is your mission?
2: Well, let's see. I, our mission statement has even evolved. We're a young organization, so I think that's natural. It's something like Pax Fauna exists to build a more effective grassroots animal movement in the United States using research. So, that initially came out of uh, three of us who were organizers with Direct Action Everywhere and were really inclined towards that sort of style of activism, which both alludes to the sort of disruptive style, but also really a focus on community organizing and the number of people involved in the movement. So, what I call like mass participatory volunteer organizations, just there are some words around. So, that was really where we started. And we had encountered some kind of consistent limitations in that space where. We had a theory of change, and it wasn't quite panning out, and so we decided to step back and see if we could come up with some avenues of research that could help address those limitations and see if we could find ways to overcome those. Over time, it's you know evolved. I think as we found answers to those questions, new questions have arisen, and we are in a place that's a little different than we necessarily expected, but I think more that we didn't know where we would end up, and now as we've you know found exactly what we're going to be focusing on, it's gotten more specific, which I'm sure we'll talk about.
1: Well, I, I mean, I think it's very exciting to find anybody in the world who actually learns stuff and changes their, their focus. That doesn't happen very often. People usually get stuck in a way of doing things and stay there. I definitely get the feeling that you are not the type of person who wants to spend all your time criticizing what others are doing. You seem to avoid that. But, but could we just start off Maybe by identifying what aspects of what the current animal protection movement is doing that maybe you're not as effective as they should be and you think there could be progress?
2: Okay, so I can start with something that I think is pretty concrete, and then we might move into things that take a little bit more effort to wrap our heads around. So one thing I feel like I can say pretty confidently now based on some of our research is that The focus on veganism in terms of individual consumer change was important to get us to where we are, but is maybe increasingly something that's holding us back from going to where we want to go. So one big thing that we've been working on over the last few years is a lot of public opinion and messaging research, and that's involved bringing in lots of just ordinary mediators. We recruit off of Reddit and bring them in for interviews and focus groups. And we've seen definitely confirms what other research has found, like there's surveys. I think some of our own research was inspired to begin with by these surveys where you can find if you ask people if they would, these are surveys of the American public, if they would support something like a ban on slaughterhouses, you'll get, you know, 48 percent of people saying that they support that. (laughs) And, you know, it's so crazy, isn't it? Right. And it's hard to puzzle out what's going on there. And, you don't we don't know what's going on there when we ask just in a survey. We can't ask follow up questions. So that was really the point of our research is to say, what's going on when, you know, in the same sample of people, of course, 98% of people agree with the statement, whether to be vegetarian is a personal choice and no one can tell me what to do. And as animal advocates, obviously, we see like that it seems like there's this huge contradiction there. And it's very frustrating for us. So we wanted to ask people, actually, can you explain to us why you can say yes to both of those things? And it turns out there's actually, you know, a pretty logical explanation, at least it's intelligent and logical from the perspective of the people that we're asking, which is that they don't feel that they have any power. They don't feel that their individual consumer choices matter very much. And beyond that, when they're thinking of themselves as an individual consumer, certain values are attached to that identity. So one identity that pretty much everyone has in modern society is as a consumer. And that comes along with certain values of personal choice and freedom and autonomy. And when we activate that consumer lens, those values that come out are really antithetical to our goals as animal advocates. And in the same moment, those values create a, a sense of futility for people that they feel ultimately powerless as consumers to have any influence over what corporations are doing. So what we think was really the difference between those two questions, would you support a ban on slaughterhouses versus, you know, is it a personal choice whether to be vegetarian or not, is what we'd call the shift from this consumer lens to a civic lens, where we're asking people to think of themselves not as consumers, but as voters, which is another identity that everyone holds that comes along with a different set of values. And as voters, people are much more willing to think about collective good, how policy is affecting other people, not just themselves. People feel a lot more powerful. They feel like they're more of a sense that what they do as voters can impact the world because they're coming together and they feel, you know, it's it's through collective action rather than individual action. We think that if we can, as animal advocates, can shift to engaging the public in that civic lens and convince the public to see our cause as a political movement rather than as a sort of weird dietary preference that some people have, that alone can sort of unlock a huge amount of public support that's out there waiting, you know, latent in people's hearts and minds that we're currently not tapping into.
1: That's so interesting. Jasmine and I have been giving a talk for probably 10 years at VegFests. And one of the things that we always said was just kind of keys into this. And it really resonates for me, like t- talking about, would it make a difference if you go vegan? Uh, you know, because arguably it wouldn't. It's very hard to make the argument that you have actually any impact at all on how many animals are killed. But we always likened it to voting. You know, people vote doesn't mean that their individual vote is going to make the difference, but we all know that collective action can matter. That really resonates with me a lot. So how does this intersect with the traditional framing within the movement, which I think you think has caused a lot of harm for some people, the, the rights versus welfare? Because obviously, if you're advocating for animals to people and you're not suggesting that they go vegan... There's a disconnect for me there. It's like, you know, I can't tell them it's okay to eat them, but you should you know, care about them. That doesn't make any sense to me. And we have to come up with things that make sense for the advocate as well as for the person who's being approached. And I think the rights versus welfare really resonates with animal activists. Like you just don't get to do any of it sure. and you can't fix it. And that really resonates with us. So how do we come up with something that resonates with us enough for us to do it but also manages to get past this resistance that people have.
2: Well, first of all, I just, there's so many things about the way that you stated the question that are exciting for me and point to, I think, some really exciting maybe overlap in how we see some of these problems.
1: Yeah, I I have to say, I was super excited about this interview because when I read what you've written, I was really like, oh God, I wish I'd said that.
2: Cool. So to name some of what those synchronicities are, maybe for the listeners, is like just acknowledging, you know, animal activists, we need to excite our own base.
1: Totally. I need to excite myself.
2: <laughs> like we need, people need to, uh, I me. you know, don't really get paid very much at all to do this. Really? And it's not, you know, there's, there's one, reason, all right, um, surprise, surprise, despite appearances. um, You know, I absolutely need to motivate myself. So I think that's one question that I think sometimes strategic thinkers in the movement underestimate how important it is that the grassroots, but the mass volunteer wing of the movement can stay motivated. And I'll just say, like, that's probably our biggest asset as the animal movement. We probably don't realize there may be no other cause area, at least in the United States, that has as deeply committed of an activist base. Yeah. Like when I talk to environmental organizers or certainly organizers in other sectors, you know, they have more money, they're more mainstream, more acceptance among the public, but they have a much harder time getting meaningful numbers of people to like actually make sacrifices for the movement. So that's a a really special thing that we have, but it's not automatic. It's like, yeah, you're absolutely right. There are some initiatives that animal people, vegan activists just aren't interested and aren't going to get on board with. And so it doesn't matter. So that's totally a huge part of this is where's the overlap between what's actually going to be inspiring enough for the people who are, you know, dedicating so much of their free time to this movement. And I also love how you said the rights versus welfare thing. It resonates so much with activists. Like that's this huge tension, and I'll name it. It's, you know, it's this big. It's been this big back and forth, especially within the U.S. movement, and maybe within the sort of Anglophone world. What I hear from actually a lot of people, like organizing in Eastern Europe or in a lot of other countries, is that that distinction is totally not relevant right. in their context. Right. And there's a lot of places where one organization, pretty much one animal advocacy organization, exists in the entire country, and they do the full spectrum. Right of different tactics that in the U.S. groups have had so much conflict over, like, oh, you know, this tactic versus that tactic, and in all these other places, everyone's like, we contain all of that within, you know, our one organization with, like, five people. So, given that, this distinction does resonate so much with animal advocates, and I think it essentially doesn't resonate at all with the public. Or it it doesn't reflect how the public thinks about our issue at all. So, what we find when we, you know, ask the public about these kind of frames, like the sort of rights-centered messaging versus, like, the welfare-centered messaging on the one hand, hmm. There's sort of clear evidence that for a lot of the public, at least the current sort of welfare campaigns are pretty uninspiring. Of course, there's a lot of, you know, deceptive marketing and there's a lot of confusion about what labels mean. But when people, you know, get an explanation of, okay, what is, you know, the difference between a battery cage farm and a cage-free farm? And they like see those images for themselves. That's like totally uninspiring for them. They're like, really, you're going to ask me to devote my life every spare minute. Or even to show up to the polls to vote for a ballot measure that's just going to take chickens out of a batter cage, but put them into a cage. You know, so that's... A different circle of hell. Right. So even even the public finds these kind of incremental, some of these incremental welfare reforms not... And it's really important to say, that's not a reason not to do those campaigns. If we think that that's something that's tractable, that can make a small improvement in animals' lives and it's what's available, like that's a whole different question. But it is a reason to say, you know, the welfare campaigns shouldn't really be our... It's not the best foot we can put forward when we're talking to the public. But on the other hand, neither is... Like, the rights-centered messaging is really confusing for people. People literally picture an elephant in a courtroom. They're like, what do you mean? So animals are going to have the right to vote. Again, I think there's one theme that I'd love to sort of drive home is, like, a lot of these things that people say... That sounds so goofy to us. And we hear them over and over again. And that, you know, the hundredth time you've heard someone say like, well, what, you you mean animals should have the right to vote? Or the hundredth time you've heard someone say, you know, but what about lions? To us, it sounds like so banal and just idiotic. And like, have you even thought about this? And it's like, the answer is, you know, yeah, no, they haven't. And actually, a lot of those statements that we hear over and over from people are actually very genuine. Yeah. So that's, We can maybe loop back to that, but actually that we need to engage with some of these things that seem so goofy to us. And it's just, we need to remember, we're not representative of the people, like we are not our audience. We're not representative of the people that we're trying to communicate with. We're the weird ones. Like we got this information and, you know, made these decisions. So there's something all of these people who have given their lives to the movement share that makes us very different from the mass public. And that's just, we just have to keep that in our minds all the time. I think I lost track of the original question.
1: Yeah. I don't know what the original question was, but it doesn't matter because that's all interesting. I totally agree that I don't, I I mean, I say this all the time, like, why don't people go vegan when they hear this? And I'm not that great a person, you know, like I know a lot of people who are much better than I am in a lot of ways and they don't go vegan when they hear this. And I just don't get it. And I think that's kind of the point, whatever it is, I don't know what it is. And that's what we're going to talk about maybe, but we're different. Like in, you know, we're not necessarily better in that one way we're better, perhaps, but in many other ways we're not. So it's not a superiority thing, but it's not the best idea for us to come up with the strategy because we don't think like other people think in this particular area. And so that's why it's so confusing to us, I think. There was a, some of the things that you've been focusing on, and there's so much on your website that we won't be able to cover. I highly recommend it. But I love this quote from Garrett Broad, who has been on the podcast, and he said that the animal movement has too much behavioral psych and not enough anthropology. Is that one way that we can kind of get into like what we should be moving away from? Not betraying, but moving away from as as messaging and moving toward.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So let me try to get it to the point where that statement can make some sense to people. And it's funny because, as I just said, and when Paxvana started in March of 2021, we spent the first 18 months almost singularly focused on this messaging research that I've been talking about, a lot of focus groups and private interviews, and then eventually now we're doing sort of survey experiments and stuff. And this statement that Garrett made is actually like very much a critique of that kind of research and that I totally agree with. So it's a place that I've evolved, you know, and continue to evolve on. So what we mean with this idea that there's too much behavioral psych and not enough anthropology, basically a different way to say it is we focus so much of our strategic thinking on how to convince individuals to get on board with what we're doing and to change their behavior to support us.
1: A lot of people focus all of their effort on their brother. Right, like, enormous amounts of effort on how to convince your family to go vegan. Like, don't do that. But even convincing anyone to go vegan, you're saying, eh. Well, okay. So
2: let's explore it because it might be still about how to get your family to go vegan. But the shift is You know, we focus so much on their individual decision-making calculus, or when we're thinking about how to change people's behavior, we're thinking of them as individuals. And so we isolate them, we take them into a laboratory setting, which in this case is just a Zoom call in their living room, but, you know, where they're just there by themselves. And we talk to them and we're essentially saying like, what would convince you? And, you know, we're not exactly taking their word for it, but that's not how people work and live and move through the world or make decisions. The overwhelming consensus within the scientific community that isn't animal advocates is that the major factors influencing people's decision-making are not their personal beliefs, their personal conclusions about what is, not to mention ethical, but not even their personal decisions about what's in their own interests. Far, far, far more influential in people's decision-making calculus is external pressures, social norms, Mm. signals that they see from people around them about what is normal, about what's encouraged. Maybe in a few areas of each of our lives, we can kind of tolerate being antisocial, meaning going against the social norm. A lot of people do it in no areas of their lives. So all of, everyone listening to this podcast does it in one or a few significant ways in their lives, but that's exhausting. I mean, think about how it's emotionally and socially really taxing. Let's just admit it. Being vegan You know, in a lot of places, it's not hard to find food. No, food's fine. With a little bit of attention, you are going to be nutritionally, you know, great. But it's socially really taxing. It has huge consequences in your life. So anyway, the point is most people base most of their decisions totally unconsciously. We make most of our decisions about how to move through the world without even thinking about it based on social norms, because we're herd, tribe, animals, whatever you want to call us. And we have just totally underinvested in thinking about that. So to give a few examples, of how the animal movement has ignored this. First, like going back a decade or more, when so much of the movement was focused on leafleting, and that was kind of the main way that we were asking volunteers to try to make change for animals, was to hand out literature about why you should be vegan. You this is totally focused on randomly targeting individuals, like totally individual people who happen to be walking through this mall or going to this concert right now, giving them information and hoping that they're going to change their behavior because we changed something in their own heads about this information. And again, it's just totally not how decision-making works. And there's so, so, so much research that that's like not how it works. And going back to what we were talking about in the very beginning about the sort of shift from the consumer lens to the civic lens, it is true that, okay, you know, one thing is not just thinking about individual people's behavior and thinking about how can society as a whole change policies and evolve together as a whole. So it's partly about, you know, thinking about not just how can we influence individuals, but how can society as a whole be evolving together, taking steps. But there's like this middle territory where it's, yeah, I do want to influence individuals. Ultimately, I think that, you know, that's a huge part of it. Government can't ban all meat products right? You know, right. without a lot of public support. So we do also need to be thinking at the human level of society. But even on that level, we're going about it wrong by totally focusing on like behavioral psychology. How do we psychologically change people's behavior through like persuasion or something? as opposed to how people are acting in groups. Because this is a way harder question. How can we like change the signals that people are getting in their day-to-day life from their friends and family because that's what's actually determining their behavior? So, way harder question. Bad news. It's a way harder question.
1: But you have answers. I mean, you do have some answers. You've written a whole lot about social norms and social networks and strong ties. And these are all like buzzwords that I took out of these articles. but they seem really, really important. There are ways to approach social change other than just going person to person and doing some of the psychology you're talking about. I mean, really resonates with me about Melanie Joy's work and, and explaining why people make decisions. Like we read that stuff and we try to focus our messaging on the way people think. But you're saying, no, if I understand. The way people think is governed by a much bigger issue than what can occur in a conversation. It's a social issue. And the fact that we, for whatever reason, weren't like that as to this issue really screws with the way we think about it. So what are all these ideas about social networks and social norms that we need to understand in order to think of ways to make change? Is that a fair question? I know it's a big question. Yeah. No, no, no. Okay.
2: I think I can take it, and I'm sure we'll find other little tangents off of that to explore. But I think that is the fundamental question that we can come sort of back around to. And the funny thing, you know, to preview or foreshadow here is like the answer is, you know, that. And for a long time, I used to say, you know, your family—it's like the hardest to influence.
1: Yeah, I always say that,
2: and to a large extent, that's true. So we shouldn't necessarily focus our energy there. But I'm going to contradict myself and say at the same time. So we'll get to this point you know, your what the research calls your strong ties, the people that you are really close to and see every day are the people that you have the most potential to influence because that's okay. So let's see how we can get there. So to get into this, essentially what we're trying to do is change people's behavior around what they eat or what they buy. Yeah. And so the question is, how do people decide how to act? How do people decide what food to buy? And there's different answers to that question that have floated around. One is, you know, if we can convince them to make an ethical decision about what food to buy. So that's, you know, leafleting saying, oh, you're hurting animals. You don't want to hurt animals anymore, right? So you go vegan. And that's pretty ineffective. I mean, it worked for us. Not going to work for the vast majority of people. I'll just sort of mention that, you know, we pull people in for these interviews almost everyone we talked to. The structure of these interviews was very open-ended. Very, we were trying to draw people out on what they think. Not, We weren't testing messages. So in, in this way, it was a little more on the anthropological side of things, where we weren't saying, okay, what do you think if we say this? We were just asking. like, So we'd get people into a Zoom just like this, and we'd ask, so what comes to mind when you think about animals used for food? We chose that exact sentence to try to be the most neutral possible, not suggestive. When we asked that, and maybe we got it wrong, because we would ask, what comes to mind when you think about animals used for food? People, the immediate response from almost everyone is like, oh, I don't like to think about it. I mean, it's so, that's upsetting. I eat meat, but oh, you know, if I really think about it. I mean, people are troubled, like the, the thing is there, but it's not working. It's not. So, okay, what are some other explanations? Well, one that's bounced around a lot, which is the sort of dominant theory change in the alternative protein space, is that, The key thing that's stopping people or that's informing people's current decision to keep buying and eating animals is the price of food, the taste of the food, and the accessibility, the convenience. So we can call this price, taste, convenience. This is another theory. Maybe if we can get the price and taste and convenience of alternatives to match, then that will get people to change. I'm also pretty skeptical of this one. So there's now research available that maybe to just go through this quickly, it's like taste. What the thing in that formulation is the assumption that's there is that taste is a chemical problem. So, if we can master the chemistry of these alternative meats, then we can get them to taste just as good as animal meat. But taste is actually, if not at least as much a psychological thing, it's primarily a psychological phenomenon. It's much, it's less about the chemical reactions between food and our tongue than it is about our brain. And some examples of this, you know, obviously different cultures have different ideas about what tastes good. I mean, that's just a really easy example. But even if you're just then saying, okay, well, we're trying to match, you know, the, this, the taste of this food to these existing foods. There was a study in 2008 where they blind taste tested, gave people some some meat sausage and some plant-based sausage. And they asked people, you know, which one do you like more? And everyone said that they liked the, the meat sausage more. Except the twist is they were misinforming people. <laughs> about half the people were misinformed about which one was the meat one and which one was the plant-based one. everyone said they liked the one that they thought was meat.
1: And that was a long time
2: ago. They didn't like plant-based ones probably were pretty bad. Right. Oh, (laughs) think about how much better. Right. That's exactly. (laughs) Plant-based sausages 15 years ago, how not analogous they were to meat. And yet everyone said they liked the plant-based sausage more if they thought that that was the one that came from animals. Not everyone. A few people in the study, said the opposite thing. Again, regardless of which the actual sausage was, people who had certain social values that were going to prime them to sort of think that vegetarianism is this good thing that we should all be doing, they liked the plant-based sausage more like the one they thought was plant Okay, so the point is it's not ethics, it's not price and tasting. It's not only any of these things. Of course, all these things are factors. But I yeah. mean, those
1: things, they matter. Yeah. It's not like this is a total waste of time developing these products. It's just not enough.
2: Yeah. One way to put it is like we're potentially walking into really tripping and falling flat on our faces with the meat alternative stuff if we okay. fail to address these social pressures around it that could lead to it being rejected. So there are very strong cultural and social attachments to meat from animals there's a lot of hesitancy about the technologies behind these foods. We can look to the sort of what happened with genetically modified organisms in food as a sort of cautionary tale about techno hesitancy around food in particular. It's Maybe it's just to say that rel- what we're relatively not investing enough thought and time and money and energy in as a movement is thinking about these social signals. So, okay, what what can we do? What could we even invest in?
1: Yeah, we want the answers,
2: not just the question. And What we can say about starting to find the answer, you know, the reason that we've invested in this less than other things, I think is fairly straightforward because it's way harder and more complicated. I mean, it's honestly as complicated as you think figuring out how to cultivate meat in a bioreactor from animal cells, as insanely complicated as that is, I think that social science is even orders of magnitude more fuzzy and complicated and imprecise and difficult than that is. So with that precautionary statement, we can get into it.
1: Yeah, well, let's get into it. I mean, if I understand correctly, the thing you don't think helps very much at all, except with a few special people, is just approaching people as individuals, explaining to them what the problem is, and expecting them to change. You see it much more as a, a social entity or a, a social effort. So can you just kind of outline what that looks yeah, like, yeah. what our goal should be? Not the end goal of ending analog, ag- but Our goal in building a movement that will be more effective.
2: So if we start to zero in on social norms as an important factor, you know, to start with, there may be aspects of it where that alone can start to invite our intuition in a different direction. Let's just think about it for a second. I mean, what would it take for, if you think about someone in your life, like you mentioned, the people who focus on their brother. I mean, I've been there. Think about that person in your life. Like, what would it take For them to see both the beliefs behind the pro-animal cause, as well as the actual behavior, which is not buying and eating animals, what kinds of things would it take for them to see that as normal? Not necessarily the dominant norm yet, but like a norm that has a lot of momentum. So there's some nice research where most of the time people look to what are most people doing to decide what they're going to do. But you can kind of hack into this. A researcher named Greg Sparkman, who's done a lot of work on dynamic norms where you can hack into this and say okay yeah only 10, 10 15% of people are doing this right now but it's growing a lot and the trend is like soon this is going to be the dominant norm and you don't you want not you want to get on board now and you're going to be able to you know sort of be like cool for doing this thing so okay we don't we only have a few vegans so we can't make people think that this is what everyone's doing but how could we get it to feel like hey this whole pro animal thing this is really what's happening? what would it feel like? What would that look like? So keep going.
1: What would it look like?
2: I mean, I have some ideas, but I'm curious if you have some ideas.
1: I mean, I guess, and it's so hard to go here, but I guess what you're saying that makes sense to me is that we somehow hold on for our, our own selves as veganism, as the lodestar, as the only moral way to live. And yet we let go of that in communicating with people to some extent and don't make that You either love animals or hate animals, and the decision is whether you eat animals. Somehow, we have to like encourage them to see caring about animals is really the way to go. And, you know, I don't think people are very far from that. I think most people really care about animals. That's the crazy thing about this whole thing. We could win this thing in a minute if we could just think of the right way to do it. They're already there in their hearts, but we just have to like get over this feeling that they have that it will make them weird. And I think veganism kind of is, it is both the goal and the, the block. Really changing the way you eat is just, for some reason, it's just too much for people. Like at every single meal that they have with other people, they will have to announce this thing about themselves, that they're not sure they can defend, that they're not even sure they want to do, that they don't, as you pointed out, they don't want to think about it. Like as soon as, like you brought up this in completely innocuous question, just how do you feel about, about animal resource for food or something. And they're like, oh God, don't ask me that. Like they don't, they don't even want to go there. And we're asking them like every single meal to think about this thing that they don't want to think about. So somehow the first step would be to really just enhance their self-identity as as caring about animals without forcing us to advocate for cage-free eggs.
2: Yeah. I think you hit on a bunch of the key things. There. So I think we can find that if we just start to shift our thinking to social norms, so we have a lot of the answers or we have some of the answers. So one way I would describe one of the things you were pointing to is like, there's an information gap among the public about how much other people really do care about animals and really are concerned about what happens to animals and farms. Lots of people themselves are just really upset and distressed when they think about what happens inside slaughterhouses. But they think everyone else must not be because look, everyone's eating meat. So they don't want to yeah. be, you know, they don't want to go out on a limb and take on that big cost. And in the research literature, there's there's a great example that looked at this with men in Saudi Arabia collecting information about how they felt about increasing rights for women. And this it was this case study where lots of men felt personally that they supported much broader rights for women, but they thought everyone else didn't. And they so they didn't want to go out and say that they did because they thought there would be social consequences. For taking that position. So not everyone, but a majority of people were hiding their position about what they thought would be ethical. The majority actually agreed about what would be good. But everyone was hiding that because they all thought other people didn't think that. So one thing is, how can we close the information gap for members of the public who think that they're the only one or they're in a minority for thinking that something really wrong is happening inside of slaughterhouses?
1: Yeah, we are kind of getting there, aren't we? Like, we're a lot closer to that than we used to be. I do think that people probably suspect that as vegans, we're criticized a lot or taunted. And I don't think that's really true. I I mean, I'm not sure it ever was true. I'm not really the person people taunt. I don't know. Like, (laughs)
2: maybe I seem too pathetic. (laughs) There's definitely some taunting. It's true that there's taunting. There's a lot of respect. I mean, I think it's another one of these things where people act very differently like in individual interactions than in big group mm. settings. In individual interactions, anecdotally, speaking of my own personal experience, when someone finds out I'm vegan, their reaction is sort of respect and even a sense of like, oh, just by me saying I'm vegan, like they, I'm reminding them that they're not right. doing something that they think they should be doing. Or, you know. So then there's like whatever defensiveness and whatever. And then maybe they respond with defensiveness or they respond with like, oh, you know, I've tried or I wish I could do that or whatever, whatever. But in a larger group, the sort of, you know, one person who's there, who's like, oh, how do you know so someone's vegan. Don't worry, yeah, they will tell yeah, you yeah. those kind of jokes. Like that becomes the dominant thing because people are more nervous. So I think there's been progress, but I think there's still a big information gap that if we could close or significantly narrow, where way more people knew that way more people are really upset about what's happening in slaughterhouses.
1: Yeah, and you're not really talking about an information gap about what's happening in slaughterhouses. You seem to indicate people are pretty familiar that it's bad. Maybe no, don't know the details, but you know who wants to know the details, but. They know there's something wrong. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yes. I, I, I think actually a lot more people know the details than are willing to go. Like a lot, a lot of people have seen the footage. We've got that. And that's been a huge success of the movement in the last however many decades. A lot of that footage has penetrated. So especially if we just zero in on that 48% of people supporting closing slaughterhouses was like nationwide. If we zero in on like our most supportive maybe social clusters, let's say liberal cities. So like urban Younger people, these are like people who are more likely to be sympathetic to our cause and also more likely to be more informed. So if you go to a city like Denver, I live in Boulder, Colorado. Denver's next door. It's 700,000 people. Um, Pretty progressive. I mean, like 82% Biden vote in 2020. So we're talking about a very democratic, blue, stronghold kind of city. That number's going to—I mean—that's going to skyrocket. But like a much higher percentage of those mm-hmm. people are upset about what's happening in slaughterhouses. They're supporting some kind of move away from that food system, but they don't know that other people would. So one strategy here is, well, okay, a set of strategies is—you know—how can we put people in a position where they're going to demonstrate to their peers that they think this.
1: Yeah, that's definitely the next question. Right. Maybe we can open their willingness to do something. But what?
2: Do what? Sure. So If
1: if we're not going to ask them to go vegan, which is what we always ask them
2: to do. Right. And I'll admit that this question of what action can we ask people for is so one of the big, it's, it's like, for me, the next exciting question that we're trying to answer. We have one that we're trying. So we are running right now in Denver, a pilot ballot measure campaign to ban slaughterhouses in the city of Denver. So we have a ballot measure that's currently circulating, and we're about to be able to turn in the signatures and qualify it for the 2024 ballot, where every voter in the city of Denver is going to have a chance to weigh in on whether we should ban slaughterhouses from operating in the city of Denver. And if that passes, but even if it, so let's say it doesn't pass, it gets in the 40s, 40 percent something. Suddenly, everyone in Denver sees that, oh, like, it's not a small number of people in my city who actually think that we shouldn't be doing this anymore.
1: But I mean, I guess this is obvious. But from our point of view, like what good? I mean, I don't know how many slaughterhouses there are in Denver. Is there sure. a lot of in city slaughter? We
2: have one large lamb slaughterhouse. It's potentially the largest lamb slaughterhouse in the country, which makes it a mid sized slaughterhouse.
1: Without asking people to not eat lamb, what good is that going to do? They'll just get their dead lambs from somebody else. Obviously, you've thought about this. So <laughs> why do I feel like it's going after the wrong problem?
2: Sure. Well, so we could go back around to how we settled on this. But what we decided is, I think there's a real short-term, some instrumental impact of this. It's going to impact like the lamb industry and at least this, this sort of surrounding states.
1: Yeah, that one company, like it's worth doing. I'm certainly not against it.
2: Right. But much more of what we're interested in with this campaign. You're, you're right. The short-term instrumental impact, I would say, is tertiary for kind of why we think this campaign is exciting. The primary impacts are more of what we're going to, what we're talking about, of these social signals. How can we send a big social signal to lots of people that actually a political position of supporting animals who are being killed for food and supporting moving away from that actually has a lot of support and is actually a a serious political movement that's really catching on? How can we sort of send these signals? How can we engage people in that civic lens that we talked about, rather than a consumer lens, what is the civic lens? I mean, at the end of the day, the ma- like we said, the main way people engage, and that is as voters. And this is a first step. We'd like to see a lot more with it. Obviously, you know, expand it to other cities, but also primarily, I would say, use these kind of city campaigns. This gets maybe into a whole lot of stuff that we're not going to be able to talk about as much today. But using the city campaigns to build right, grassroots right, power right. in a particular place up towards maybe running a state campaign and maybe factory farming ban statewide in Colorado, suddenly we're talking about something much more impactful. This is maybe a step in that direction because it takes a lot of capacity and power to win a statewide ballot measure campaign that's provocative and edgy like that. It's setting ourselves up for future campaigns, but to it into this conversation is maybe this is a way to close that information gap.
1: And is it a way to get people to take a stand for animals without exactly. asking them to stop eating them? And maybe, you know, some of them will start thinking about eating them. But you haven't asked them to. So you don't have that defensiveness. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So in psychology or in like sales, this is called the foot in the door strategy where, okay, w- there's a big gap between where people are right now and where we want them to be. Veganism is a huge step. Yeah. So how can we subdivide that? And one way people talk about doing it is meatless Mondays right. or right. whatever, reducitarian. And maybe there's something to that. I'm not here to criticize that. But here's a different way to do it can we offer people political positions that they can actually act on? Like you said, not just something ineffable, but no, really cause people to take a specific action, furthering the goals of the animal freedom movement. And will that kind of shift their personal identity, get them to the point where they can say, I'm not vegan or I'm not vegan yet. I'm not vegan, but I'm pro-animal and I'm going to support this policy. And now maybe there's this principle of consistency kicks in that I want to be more consistent. So yeah, okay. I voted for the lamb ban, the lamb slaughterhouse ban, and now maybe I shouldn't buy lamb tonight. That's speculative. I'm not relying on this having a big impact on diet change in the short term. But if we can build this into a political movement, again, it's like going back to this public opinion research we were doing, we'd get so many people into our interviews who not only, you know, in the beginning say, oh, I, I don't, it's so upsetting to think about what happens to animals, but also could say, yeah, you know, if everyone had to do it, I don't I I don't want to do it alone. I don't want to be the one, you know, in my friend group of twenty people, like exactly like you said. It's there's just huge I don't want to take on this huge social cost, go out on a limb, you know, stick my neck out, be the one to have to shoulder this. Yeah. But if everyone had to do it, I'd support that. That'd be a good thing. I mean, I think we have some we have all these quotes from people who are like, Oh yeah, I mean, if you put a bunch of people in a room and they have to talk about this and you know, everyone's gonna come around to a yes. Like this is just common sense, this is what should be doing. Oh. There's a 400% tax on meat tomorrow. Well, no more hamburgers. I mean, these are all, I'm just like spitting off some quotes from. So maybe there's a path to really radical change for animals that doesn't go primarily through people going vegan in larger and larger numbers, but instead goes through turning this into a political movement where people are putting the onus on government policy to prod collective action.
1: And can we get to the, like what ends up being a stumbling block for so many people in any kind of reform I mean, and you say it's not in Eastern Europe, but it definitely is here. And that's like this idea, which I've never embraced, that welfare reforms, I'm not sure I would call this a welfare reform. It's kind of akin to a welfare reform, make people feel better about eating animals. And therefore, they're not only not not the right way forward, they're not only a waste of time, but they're actually harmful. I think that has been one of the most, unless it's true, I just don't have any reason to believe it's true because I don't see why that would be true. And it seems to me that most people don't care at all, don't feel bad at all about buying factory-farmed meat. So it's not like like if we tell them something, they're going to feel better about it because they don't feel bad about it. So I've never really bought into that. But I think it is a huge worry for people that in making reforms, in telling people, oh, well, you should feel good because you voted against uh, slaughtering lambs. I do feel good. Let's go out and have hamburgers. Is that a thing? Is it just not yeah. true? Is, it, is there any reason to believe it is true? And what do people do about it
2: if they're worried about that? This is a very important question. Um, it's an empirical question that we don't have an answer to. That's the first thing I'm going to say. Like, there's Conceivably, there's a way to really robustly answer this question about how do welfare reforms change the way that people think about the position of animals used for food more broadly and the idea of moving away from it. Um, More fully, there's some evidence so far that's been collected through different research that contradicts. So it's mixed results about whether it leads people to think more about actually, you know, maybe the Prop 12 campaign and learning about what's happening to hens in cage farms, and then they do research and think, oh, cage-free farms are better, and actually more people look into reducing their consumption, or it makes people more comfortable. I mean, I think you're right. It's like well, you know, I actually do think people feel bad about what happened, but it just doesn't matter because they're still buying it. It's right. like, yeah, okay, they feel bad about it, but it's the, the point right. is not for people to feel shitty when they're consuming these products. is for them to not consume the product. So so I don't want to brush aside those concerns because I think it's unresolved and it could be that winning certain welfare reforms, I don't think it's decisively proven by any means. But there's a, lo- there's a logic to what we're thinking people would be thinking. Like, oh, no, we made it better. And it's certainly true that the vast majority of people don't think that the solution is to get rid of animal farming completely. They think that the solution is to make it better. Now their idea of making it better is, economically, it's a fantasy. Obviously we all know that, but but that is how they think. So could it be sending that signal to them? Wh- what I would say is, I think whether welfare campaigns are sending a negative signal, I don't think they send the really strong, positive signal that we're trying to send. So I think that what whatever the movement's doing, wh- what we're focusing our public engagement on, like fortunately, a lot of the welfare campaigns now, they're Targeted at corporations and corporate boardrooms. And it's actually not primarily about engaging with public opinion. And that leaves a big opening to what we should be engaging with public opinion. That's been not the theme of this whole conversation. I think that's not a controversial claim among most activists. Like, yeah, we've got to convince people to support our movement. And so it leaves an opportunity that we can really choose, you know, what kind of policies or or asks or demands or, or narratives do we want to be presenting to the public. And I think it's correct that incremental welfare improvements probably aren't the strongest story to be telling to the public. I don't think a slaughterhouse ban in Denver is an incremental welfare improvement. I think it's a conversation about, should we... That wasn't fair. I admit it. Yeah, no, it's it's okay. I mean... It's different. Some people will probably see it that way. The funny thing is, it's almost the opposite. I mean, it's more of a NIMBY thing, you know? If we're going right. to get some people are on board who aren't, like, on board with the whole animal rights message, it's going to be like, oh, slaughterhouses mm. shouldn't be in Denver. They should be out in the middle of nowhere.
1: They must smell bad.
2: Oh, yeah, right. Which, there's actually been some criticism from animal activists about that choice of policy. And it's a legitimate thing. I just think the benefits outweigh that. And anything we do has pros and cons. So we have to make choices sometimes about what kind of negatives we're willing to accept.
1: And we have to face the fact that it's a very big lift. It's a tiny little movement. And we're trying to change the way the entire world eats and has eaten for like a really long time. So we have to give ourselves a break.
2: And a huge structural part of the economy. I mean, it's absolutely Well,
1: I could do this all day, but, you know, I have to let you go because we're running out of time. But I really encourage everybody to go read through your website because there's so much more information there. It's just so exciting to talk about somebody who's thinking strategically and in new ways and, you know, with a relatively positive outlook. So thanks so much for all of it, Aiden, and thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks, Maria. I guess I just want to acknowledge to any listeners that uh, there's probably a lot of like threads that we opened that we you know didn't answer and didn't tie off. And a lot of those questions don't have simple answers.
1: Was there anything else you want to add before I... Not,
2: not any one thing that's yeah. burning. It's just to say, I think I'll, for some of the questions that you might be left with, I may or may not have an idea of what some possible answers are. But I also just want to say, I very much think that nearly everyone in this movement is capable of thinking through these questions. So I hope you don't feel sold out or anything.
1: <laughs> I don't think that's the case. Thanks, Aiden.
0: change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review.
1: Anxiety surprising. Our first story is from Meeting Place from the Meat Business column by Gregory Bloom. New York City Mayor Eric Adams' anti-meat and dairy agenda. They're upset with Mayor Adams because he doesn't want people to eat meat. And uh, But before dissecting his decisions, says Gregory, it's imperative to acknowledge his personal jury that led him to adopt a plant-based diet over a decade ago. So they're actually admitting <laughs> that, they, that, that that he had type 2 diabetes, that his health improved, and, and that that's commendable. However, it's important to remember that individual experiences and choices may not always serve as a blueprint for broad policy decisions because... What he seems to be saying is that the only person in the world who's ever gotten better from a plant based diet is Mayor Adams. It's not just an individual thing, Gregory. Mayor Adams seems to hold the belief that what works for him should be applied universally, shaping public policy to align with his personal convictions and agenda. And I might I might add a, a whole boatload of science. Uh, so they're talking about um, a Meatless Mondays campaign, which as far as I can tell is uh, you know, I googled it, and it seems to be based, as I had thought, in hospitals and schools. It puts the plant-based choice first, but doesn't require the plant-based choice. And um, as as this article says, while touted as voluntary, well, it is voluntary. <laughs> I mean, they're not lying. However, he believes it will inadvertently morph into a one-size-fits-all approach. Encouraging individuals to go meatless on a specific day does not sufficiently account for their unique dietary needs, cultural preferences, or daily nutritional requirements. I mean, what? Like, it's, it's on a one day and they're encouraging people. Like they're not requiring people. It's just so insanely over the top. So they're worried about that he's uh talking about the environmental impacts as well because it is undeniable he admits that the livestock industry has environmental impacts yeah no shit sherlock more sustainable and responsible farming practice has have the potential to mitigate these adverse effects well you know like no they don't and if they do then why aren't they in place and how much mitigate how much you know like it's like 2% 5% this will do this this will do that it's all nonsense But what about the ecological footprint of plant-based choices? It's not as though plant-based alternatives leave no environmental impact. Well, you know, I admit that's true. They don't leave no environmental impact. But when you look at any possible study of the measurement of the comparison between the impact of meat, well, you know that. Everything we eat has an environmental impact. Well, yeah, oh God, just a much less one. Um, critics like me, <laughs> who were they? Other people who work for the meat industry, argues that this uh, whole anti-meat and dairy agenda encroach upon personal freedoms. Did I mention that it was voluntary? And choices. Individuals should retain the autonomy to make their dietary decisions based on their values, cultural backgrounds, and personal nutritional needs. Uh, yeah, well, they do. No matter how wrong they are, they still get to choose. The prospect of government intervention in dietary choices raises pertinent questions about the appropriate scope of public health initiatives and the role of personal choice. The language in this is just so over the top. It's unbelievable. Also, he's concerned that, you know, there's this trend to play this line. Uh, Just brace yourself. There's a trend to place I can't stop laughing at it, even though it's tragic. There's a trend to place the needs of the planet above the needs of people. Like Is he aware that people need the planet in order to survive? Oh my God. All right, that's enough. That's enough. I can't deal with it anymore. All right, our second story is about Mercy for Animals. This is from whatpoultry.com. And it, you know, uh, kudos to Mercy for Animals. That's what I got to say. Mercy for Animals validates notion. It hassles restaurants. And they're talking, he he starts off by saying uh, that, when, when a restaurant or other business makes a commitment related to sourcing animal protein raised in accordance with some sort of perceived animal welfare benefit, the company will say it's due to consumer demand. Uh, and that he's talking specifically about the better chick chicken commitment, which is this very weak set of uh, set of concepts and, and behaviors for, for treating chickens raised for meat just a tiny bit better. And they still can't pull it off. They still can't get enough companies to do it in order to to source it. And that's basically what this is about. But he says, this doesn't have anything to do with consumer demand. Case in point, it has been quite noticeable over recent years that many grocery store consumers prefer to purchase lower priced eggs laid by cage shins than pay more for cage-free eggs. And as I constantly point out, I know I do it every week, that people won't choose to pay more themselves when given the choice, because they don't think other people will do it, they don't think it will have an actual impact. Uh, That's my theory anyway, which I think is a pretty good one. He believes though that many of us at industry events have heard or been part of discussions about how these purchase pledges are more motivated by pressure from animal rights groups than by actual consumer requests. This is apparently what they're saying. (laughs) at industry events, which of course makes it true because you know you only get reliable information at an industry event. He's pointing to the fact that some animal rights groups are um, honest about this, but Mercy for Animals didn't even have to tell him directly that they were hassling restaurant chains to sign and adhere to purchase pledges that align with their beliefs. You could read between the lines. So his point is is that restaurants are not adhering to Mercy for Animals' uh, uh, demands because they're afraid of consumer backlash. They're just conceding to their demands because they've been hassled. Because, you know, restaurants are always doing that. Just, you know, no matter what anybody tells them, no matter what anybody says, they just do it. They don't even pay attention to whether it's good for their bottom line or anything. They They just do it. You know, anybody, even crazy people, come in and say, do this, they just do it. So he's talking about this, Press release he received um, from Mercy for Animals about TGI Fridays, you know, which is a huge chain, and and the fact that that apparently they were not complying with their commitments to this to use GAP certified suppliers because they didn't have enough of them. Then they were claiming that a lot forty five percent of their chicken purchases are American Humane certified, and we know that is complete and total nonsense. As it turned out. This campaign did not go into effect because somebody from Mercy for Animals reported that after years of silence, TGI Fridays met with the Mercy for Animals corporate engagement team to discuss chicken welfare progress reporting, having learned about Mercy for Animals planned campaign and demonstrations. And since those discussions, they committed to publishing progress and a roadmap towards fulfilling its better chicken commitment. I mean, it ain't much, but at least they got something out of them. But apparently, this guy thinks they only did that because, you know, Mercy for for Animals is so much more powerful than TGI Fridays. That's got to be the reason. The retail companies just must be terrified that the word will get out about what they're doing to these animals. And at some point, at some point, I'll probably be dead by then. At some point, people will wake up. All right. Our final story. This story kind of like I get teary by the end of it. It's not gruesome at all. This just it really touched me, and I'm not. I wasn't even sure it is a a rising anxieties um, report, but then I decided it really is because it shows how much they want to pretend that they actually care about animals. Michigan hen added to Guinness Book of World Records. This is a story that I found on the Watt Agnet site. You know, like the people who who are the trade organization for selling for raising, killing, and selling the bodies of billions of birds. All right, so this is about Peanut. She's now the oldest living chicken, I guess, that they know of. She's at least 20 years and 272 days. She lives with Marcy Darwin, a retired librarian, described as a doddering old lady, but she has had quite a life. Apparently, the first eight years of her life sucked since she worked as a layer and a breeder producing eggs and offspring well there's a couple of things here i want to point out like she wouldn't have made it to 8 years if she was working in production today because they all die after 2 and 3 years what is this thing she produced eggs and offspring like they're kind of the same thing like they produce an egg and that turns into offspring unless the egg is stolen from them it annoyed me all right she spends a lot of days watching tv sunbathes and scratches around in the dirt. So, you know, they have loads of pictures of her just trying to show how much they really love chickens. Then there's the final pieces. What can we learn from Peanut? All right, the points out that the average commercial layer head is kept for two or three years. Sees no, the, the article sees no irony in any of this. And that you know, backyard flocks may live a few years longer, although the level of egg production, egg size and shell quality decreases with age. Well, yeah, then, you know, you want to kill them. Because what else would you do? This author somehow suspects the commercial layer barns won't be adding must-see TV to their operations anytime soon. <laughs> Get it? But then points out that there is research that suggests that exposure to videos that simulate a free-range environment can boost layer hen health and welfare. And so they actually did show it was uh, virtual reality. I don't know how that worked. Did they did they put little goggles on their faces i I don't know how it works but they said they showed them virtual reality to 34 hens they were 15 weeks old and this is a stressful period for for hens because it's when they're moved from pullet to egg laying facilities and so they they played these videos for five days And they were of indoor facilities but had access to outdoor scratch areas and unfenced prairies as well as groups of free-range chickens performing positive behaviors like preening, perching, dust bathing, and nesting. It kind of makes me want to cry. The hens that were able to watch this, like, did better. They showed lower indicators of stress and increased resistance to, to avian pathogenic E. coli. Oh, my God. These poor little birds who are like being sent off to live in hell. And just watching watching a video of other chickens living a decent life made them a little better. Oh my God, do they not see what's wrong here? That's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well,
0: that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook where you can also leave a fabulous review and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at OurHenHouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at OurHenHouse.mn.co is available to everyone regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine, and you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic Our Hen House Brass Pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicky Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week.